Welcome to Dose Nation, Episode 3. I am your host, Jay Kettle. Thank you for joining us. And, of course, uh, with me this evening is uh, my co-host, uh, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I am doing great. I think this is going to be a fun show. It is. So let me just go right into introducing the guest. Uh, t- tonight's guest is Hamilton Morris. He's a writer for Vice Magazine and is the star of uh, Hamilton's Pharmacopoeia, which is a video series on Vice.com. Hamilton may be the world's foremost journalist on the topic of underground psychedelics, hallucinogens, and research chemicals, and has traveled the world to cover these topics from the street-level gray market all the way up to the backroom chemists and industrial internet suppliers that fuel this gray market. Hamilton, uh, welcome to Dose Nation. Thanks for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. It was a good introduction. Is that a fitting introduction? Does that describe what you do? (laughs) I did not write that. That was uh, James' words. So. I won't take credit for that. Um, so let's just get right into it. How did you first get interested in psychedelics and uh, hallucinogens, and what was your gateway drug? Oh, man. I, <clears throat> well, I, I certainly smoked quite a bit of salvia when I was in high school, and, uh, and that was, you know, I don't think anyone could possibly anticipate the potency of salvia without ever used a psychedelic drug can you tell me uh, how you were exposed to salvia? Where did you get? Were you just getting it from your local head shop or over the internet, or well, what, was, how did you how did you learn about it? Uh, I was in high school, maybe in it's probably in two thousand four, two thousand five, and uh, and people were talking about salvia. What's interesting is now salvia is considered to be this extremely menacing difficult drug that people routinely have negative experiences with. But um, at least when I was first hearing about it, and this was before people use the internet quite as much as they do now to disseminate information about drugs, uh, I'd heard only positive things about it. No one had ever indicated in any way that it was scary or difficult. They just sort of made it seem to be a, a completely pleasant, interesting experience. So when I went into it, I had no idea that it even had the potential to be difficult. And and I think for that reason, I've never had a difficult experience. I was never afraid of salvia to begin with. Um, but, uh, but yeah, people talked about it because it was available in head shops in Massachusetts. And um, there was, I can't remember the exact, it was, I can't remember the exact brand name, but it had a butterfly on the packaging. And, <laughs> and, uh, I like you that. Get small Ziploc bags of, 20x extract, you know, exactly how potent it actually was, uh, but it was certainly potent enough that a single inhalation of the material completely detached you from consensus of reality. And uh, so, yeah, I think that's a good way to begin. And then I started, you know, learning about the extracting the salvinorin A from the leaves, and that was sort of my introduction to both botany and chemistry and uh, and growing a plant and really becoming extremely interested in it. And, uh, yeah, I think that was probably where it began. But also, there's, you know, the, the like, research chemical industry was also blossoming during that period as well. And so I, I kind of saw a lot of these very early research chemical vendors. And, and when I was in high school, I was more or less too afraid to 
in order with any of these companies, but I was watching them all very carefully. And uh, I don't know if you remember these companies, Bravo Trade and these early Chinese companies. This is like one of the early, mid-2000, uh, one of the first non-domestic research chemical vendors. They sold uh, things like Phytomeo, DIPT, 2DT7 probably at extremely inflated prices. They'd sell, you know, 100 milligrams of Phytomeo, DIPT for $150 or something like that. So and this was, like was from China? China? Yeah, it was a Chinese company. They also sold GBL. Um, but this, I mean, this is an example of a company I never actually did business with, but was fascinated by. They've since, I think they've been defunct for at least four years now, but they were one of the, one of, after Web Trip, I think they were one of the first companies to emerge out of the ashes of that American research chemical distribution network. You recently traced an internet research chemical supplier back to China and actually visited the laboratory there. Is that accurate? Yes, that is accurate. Can uh, you tell me a little bit how you got onto this trail and, and what you found at the end of it? Well, that was always the, the fantasy, is like, because there's something so bizarre about it. Uh, it, it, it makes sense to imagine a company that's selling opioids or a company that's selling stimulants, but to imagine a, a company in Ningbo, China, or Shanghai, that's selling drugs that are almost exclusively taken from P-Call and T-Call, exclusively psychedelics, phenethylamines and tryptamines, and, uh, and, and it's just such an odd business model for someone for someone in China when you think that their only interest would be making money, yet they're not selling the most profitable chemicals you would expect, although it's so hard to even gauge what is and is not profitable in this sort of a industry. But um, but I would just fantasize, like, what are these people like? What is What are these factories like that are producing all of the world's 2CC and, uh, <laughs> and competing internationally? Do they have Olympic swimming pool-sized reaction vessels? Are they making hundreds of kilos of 2CC, or are there only a few people buying this stuff? Because it's really hard to say. You you see what's going on in America and maybe in England, but you know people are using these materials in Poland and Italy, all over the place, all over Europe, and uh, and it's really hard to gauge exactly how popular they really are and how many people are really using them. So I just wanted to go visit one of these places and see what the laboratory was like, talk to the people that actually produce these chemicals, see what their motivation was in producing psychedelics specifically as opposed to opioids or cannabinoids or stimulants. And uh, of course, the problem is that why would anyone allow me to do that? Why would any Chinese laboratory ever want someone to go in? And even if it's not an explicitly criminal endeavor, even if this is a gray market sort of exchange, um, you can, of course, imagine why they wouldn't want journalists covering their business because, especially in China, where there seems to be so much ambiguity in a lot of these laws. Could well, how did, you, how did you even track down a company? And, and, and did you like track them down through the internet and then start making phone calls? Or was it a much more slower and subtle kind of thing? Um, well, I don't know how much of this you heard, but you generally have to email these people, and the model is constantly evolving in how these transactions are made. 
but especially you know around 2009 2010 you'd just find email addresses and you'd start an exchange with someone at the company who speaks English and uh, and then you and you talk about your order you talk about payment methods whatever and in the, in the course of this you find out where the company is the name of the person accepting payment um, and you get an idea of at least a vague idea of where the place is located. So I knew that there were a lot of these places in Shanghai and Ningbo, China. And uh, and so the next step was to figure out a way to allow them to figure out a way to allow them to allow me into their factory. And uh, and then there was an article published in the Daily Mail actually by a English journalist who's living in Shanghai and he posed as a legal high entrepreneur and uh, and entered one of these factories. It's owned by this guy named Eric who uh, was an enormous methadrone baron. He'd made tens of millions selling methadrone during the height of the methadrone craze in England in 2009 and was had also produced a number of different cathinones including MDPV. He was probably one of his other most profitable substances, which has now been all over the news because of the John McAfee thing. But, um, but so, so I, Eric, I was talking... Eric was an Anglo who had a factory in China, or Eric was no, Eric, Eric, Eric is a Eric is a Chinese cathinone baron, and, I see. Uh, and this and this European journalist living in Shanghai uh, contacted Eric, pretending to be a legal high entrepreneur, and I see. Okay. said, you know, "We, we want to start a." business relationship with you, but, uh, but you know, first we're going to have to meet, we're going to have to talk about whatever, and, uh, and they went in and they photographed the laboratory. And then, so when I read this article, I was amazed that it was that easy, and I was talking with the journalist about it, and he confirmed that it was actually not difficult at all, that it wasn't some sort of super involved undercover operation, uh, but that it was, you know, just as simple as him saying, I want to visit. Uh, Although it was undercover, and of course he was lying to Eric, he wasn't right. Saying, I'm a journalist. Uh, it wasn't a full James Bond infiltration, though. <laughs> yes, but uh, so I decided to do exactly the same thing, and uh, and I initially I didn't want to just because I would prefer not to lie to people, and it, the whole thing kind of feels like an anti-drug thing to do, like like a narcish thing to do, to like go into someone's drug lair wearing a wire and, and have a secret conversation with them about drugs. It's just like something I prefer not not to do unless it's absolutely necessary. Um, and in this case, of course, the, the purpose wasn't for an expose. It wasn't to say, ha-ha, I, I caught these guys in their gray market operation. I just wanted to learn more about it because it's such a fascinating and mysterious industry and no one is going to tell anyone any information about it uh, because they can't trust journalists obviously not to publish the information in some sort of a really damaging way. Whereas right. I have and no let's, interest in And let's be real. Let's, what, what other journalists are going to cover this story? Who else is going to do this besides you? Nobody. Well, I, mean, I think I, you're probably I, the well, only person who's got the gumption to go and do this except maybe this one other guy in, in England. But it's a good story, and I can imagine they were certainly worried that other people would do it because it is a good story, and it is a, a very big, you know, that's the whole thing. is like, how, how big is this industry? Uh, I get the impression that it's immense, 
in which case you, you would think that it is newsworthy and that lots of people would want to write stories about it and, uh, and that people are going to write really negative things about it and not identify the possibility that this industry is actually not that bad uh, compared to the previous drug distribution models where you buy drugs from a dealer on the street. I think that this is potentially a significant improvement, um, although it's very difficult to objectively gauge those sorts of things. But um, but anyway, so I have no interest in revealing their identity, even naming the, the exact labs that I visited, although I do have video footage that will be incorporated into this upcoming episode. And, uh, and it was as simple as setting up a, a buy to purchase large quantities of unscheduled cannabinoids and, uh, and saying that before making the purchase, it was necessary that we visit the lab to evaluate the manufacturing conditions because our story was that we had had some difficulties in the past with quality control and our customers were very concerned about purity and we were putting our name on this material and it was essential that that we go and visit these companies, which didn't seem like such an unusual request to me. Like you'd think, okay, if you're buying 10 kilos of a chemical, it's not totally unreasonable to want to see the lab that it's being produced in. But they said we were the first person that had ever asked that. So. Oh. So um, it was. Was it just you, or you and one other person? It was me and the. It was me, a Chinese translator, and the producer of the episode, Santiago Stelli, who I, who accompanies me on all these trips. And uh, that's for Hamilton's and, Pharmacopoeia. Yeah, the video series. Yes. Okay. Yes. Formerly of Vice, he's now started his own company, but uh, but he he did most of the video content for Vice for years and. And so, and Santiago is like a very slick European guy who I feel like could very believably be someone buying twenty thousand dollars worth of synthetic <laughs> cannabinoid. And and the idea was that I was like his chemist companion who was going to talk about the syntheses, talk about the purity, examine the manufacturing conditions, whatever. So I thought it was a pretty believable story all in all because he could talk about money easily and I could talk about chemistry easily. So there was no major acting involved in any of it. And, uh, and so we went and we visited the companies and we talked about all sorts of things. And, uh, and, you know, I was taken into a, a cannabinoid storage facility that had just drums and drums and drums of this, synthetic cannabinoid called UR-144 that has uh, really taken off in recent months. And, uh, and yeah. And how is, what trade, what trade name is that sold under? Is that sold at head shops or is that just mainly an underground? Oh, no. I mean, all these things, I was just doing some analysis on these chemicals and, and that's the amazing thing about the, about the CB1 receptor that is responsible for the stoning effect is that it can accept such an enormous, enormous, unfathomably large variety of molecules. You can make almost any conceivable modification to a lot of these parent structures, and it still maintains the stoning effect. So, you know, who knows what are in most of these blends? You have to really analyze them on a case-by-case basis, but I'm sure a large number of them contain UR-144, and you can also buy UR-144 as a pure chemical 
for the people that are interested in that sort of thing. So they had vats of this stuff, and what else? How many other chemicals were they selling? Oh, they had uh, they had all sorts of different cannabinoids. They had bivineo, BALT. Uh, of course, they had different cathinones. They I collected a number of different samples from these companies to bring back for chemical analysis, and uh, and our translator took them all. So it's like part that part of the episode has been slightly complicated by Wait, the fact he, that he he confiscated them or he, he abused them he took them like he took them for himself for pleasure. I don't know what it was a she and I don't know oh, what she. she did with them. Um because they were all unscheduled and we thought, Yeah, we'll send them back to the US and we'll analyze them and see you know, see if they are correctly identified, see what they some of them some of them were sold, like with UR-144, it's just the sort of thing you can look it up on Wikipedia and you know what the structure is. But then other ones had more mysterious names that uh, are not uh, connected to any sort of known pharmaceutical or any sort of material that is in the, the scientific literature at this point. There's one called, I think, TB2 that uh, I'm still unsure of what that actually was. And I was, certainly didn't want to try any of these things without are these, so are these compounds that their in-house chemists come up with, or is this something that they just find in the wild and start to replicate? Well, yeah, that's a really interesting question. That's one of the things that I wanted to know, like how much R&D is going <laughs> on. Is this just, I mean, I think that the idea initially was just kind of, you know, thumb through call, find what looks good, what has the potential to sell, and put that on the market. There was very little uh, original material being sold. But now there, I think there's a move towards a lot of innovation in the in the gray market uh, distribution scene, both in New Zealand with guys like Matt Bowden and in China. Um, with uh, And you see that not just with psychoactive drugs, but also, also with these Viagra-type PDE5 uh, inhibitors, because... It's the same sort of thing. There's an enormous market for these Cialis, Viagra derivatives that are put in supposedly herbal aphrodisiac blends, and uh, and a huge number of the ones that are discovered are are not things that have been taken from the chemical or scientific literature. They're things that were just invented specifically for the gray market by Chinese chemists, and that's a really interesting development. Do you want to move on to the next topic? <laughs> Yeah. I mean, I'm asking. I'm asking Jake if he well, if 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 you, if you have any other questions on this because I've talked to Hamilton about this previously. I wanted to know if you had gotten what you you wanted to hear about that. Yeah, I did. You know, actually, uh, I uh, the most most of what I had to say actually is in regards to the trip that you took to Haiti. Uh, oh, yeah. you want to move to that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what? And and there's a reason that I do, and it's because many years ago, before I had even. You know, known. I mean, I didn't even know what 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 any of this stuff was. I mean, I was totally outside of the psychedelic community, but I was interested in kind of the indigenous religion. And one of the things that I had come across was a story of a um, of a man who wandered off, uh, you know, to go see some kind of uh, you know voodoo priest, and he never, came, you know, for twenty years he was missing, and then one day he wandered back to the you know to, to the village. And, you know, his wife and his children, like, oh, my God, what happened to you? Where have you been? You know, so on and so forth. And he was, you know, kind of enslaved by this, you know, by this voodoo priest. Oh, core. You, you, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. Using, 
I, I don't remember the guy's name. I don't remember the exact. Um, I mean, I mean, this was many years ago that I that, that, that someone told me this, and I had you know read about it. But I'm yeah. interested in 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 hearing what you found out when you went down there about this you know mythical zombie powder and you know and all that. So wait, you you were you went to Haiti in search of zombie powder specifically, but like uh, you you were looking for what TT like a tetrodotoxin. Yes. Yeah, that was and the. Well, we were looking for whatever assumption. we might. Yeah, that we were going off of the Wade Davis Serpent in the Rainbow thesis or hypothesis that uh, that the zombie phenomenon was based on a TTX induced paralysis, and we weren't necessarily trying to prove or disprove it, but just to investigate, you know, the validity of the idea and to. See, maybe there's another chemical that was not anticipated to be a part of the process, or you know, just to see whatever, or maybe the, the potions had evolved, which is another possibility, just to see right. what it was in these potions, or if we could even successfully collect them. And, uh, and, and, and to be specific, just so people aren't confused, when you're talking about Haiti zombies, you're talking about a ritual of enslaving somebody, like a master and yes. enslavement process. Yes. It's yes. not yes. like turning it's somebody a- into a walking dead. No, no, yeah. not a supernatural phenomenon. This is a completely right. natural phenomenon that is a chemically induced transient paralysis followed by the administration of some stupefying, deliriant, anticholinergic drug like scopolamine or atropine. Now, let me let me ask: How long can these states be induced for? How long can, can the, I mean the paralysis or the Stupefaction. I mean, uh, how? Stup- yeah, I mean, I'm. I mean, how long can the can the let's say voodoo priest keep keep someone under this enslavement? I mean, how, do do they have to continually administer these over a period of time while the person is still intoxicated? Well, yeah, these are you know all the sorts of questions that everyone has has always wondered, and uh, and Wade Davis would say that that the effect of the drug is dependent on the cultural matrix in which it is administered, and that. You know, maybe for a materialist American, this sort of a process would not be as effective, but in the cultural matrix of Haiti, maybe even a single administration of this drug would be enough to convince, hypothetically, a single administration of this delirium drug might be enough to convince someone for the rest of their lives that they're a zombie. They may never think they're alive again. Right, it's kind of a head game. It's a little bit of a, it's a little bit of voodoo magic. It's a little bit of pharmacology. It's a little bit of convincing this person that they're under your spell and that if they leave your spell, they'll they'll die within 24 hours. But it's a case by case basis at the end of the day. Yeah, but but uh, Hamilton, tell tell let's let let's let you talk about what you actually found because this is pretty it's pretty weird and wild what went on when you were down there. Right. Well, I mean, one thing that just is, and I have already lost. You know, I was someone under the spell of all of it myself for a while, and I've, I've certainly become detached from it, but it's impossible to really effectively communicate how deeply the magical thinking runs in Haiti, and the, the level at which anything that would be considered logical thinking in Europe or America is just kind of, or North America, is uh, just totally abandoned there. Like, you know, it, it is a legitimate threat there to tell someone that you're going to transform them into a goat that is, like, taken very seriously and not questioned as as if that is, like, possible or not. Uh, 
So after being there for a few weeks, it just starts to really warp the way you think because people are constantly talking about curses, talking about invading your dreams, talking about spells, you know, making, forcing you to engage in these magical rituals to ward off evil. And, uh, and, and so it does, it does kind of put you in a weird place where you're trying, I was of course trying not to be too skeptical. My general impulse is to be extremely skeptical of most things, particularly spiritual or religious things. But, you know, from an anthropological standpoint, that's a, a really bad way to approach anything because then you're not going to, you know, a certain degree of, of credulousness is required in order to really communicate with people and not look like a asshole that is right. noting everything they said. You have to, you know, you have to give people a chance to explain their belief system to you without, you know, the condescending look. So, so, so the uh, all of the belief in the magical thing and the curses and stuff like that is that. Did you feel like it's a kind of like psychic warfare that's going on, that people are just sort of under these threats all the time? It's unclear whether it even exists at all. It's very hard to say to what extent any of it is real. Um, Wade Davis, but people, but people accept it as real, and they believe it. People accept it as real in Haiti, but people also accept werewolves as real and ghosts as real. So it's, uh, so it's hard to, they certainly are not conceptualizing it on the materialist level that Wade Davis outlines in The Serpent and the Rainbow. They're not, uh, even, even if they do understand that an extract of a puffer fish is somehow involved in the process, they don't have the same concept of cause and effect, like I have administered a drug, the drug will produce an effect, and that is the, the causative agent in this phenomenon. There, there's nothing is thought of like that. So It's more ritual. Uh, it's more ritual, it's more based on, you know, on such a complex constellation of different factors, it's very hard to pin down what causes anything. So it's hard to figure out what people believe. And then, of course, the other issue that can't be underestimated is that this is something white people with money are very interested in. It's the same sort of thing that drives the, the ayahuasca economy in Peru and uh, Peru and, and Central and South America because, because any time that you know, white people with money are going into an environment in search of something, then people will spring up ready to fulfill that demand or desire. And so in the same way that people want to go to Peru and have an ancient shamanic experience with a, with a man whose father was a shaman, whose grandfather was a shaman, so they can feel like a part of this ancient ahistoric ritual. Um, it's the same to a lesser extent. It's a similar sort of thing in, in Haiti. They're aware that people find, to the tourists, find the idea of voodoo and zombies and the supernatural very interesting. And so they're, they're willing to some extent... I'm guessing to manipulate people in order to make them feel as if they're engaging in some sort of a supernatural experience, you know, watching them bite the heads off chickens or even though that's also part of their, their actual ritual as well. So it's very hard to draw the line at what is performance for money and what is real because voodoo in and of itself is a very dramatic thing. You know, it's all mirrors and fire and drinking and, you know, painting with blood, sacrifice of animals, biting off heads. It's like a, you know, and this is from it's the a performance. Oldest. It's performance right. art. Yeah. It's ritualistic. Yes. 
Yes. So, um, in your video, there's one point where you actually meet a voodoo priest, and he takes you to what I can only describe as a zombie shack. Yes. Is that is that a correct description of what you saw? So that's a, that's a good example. When I was there and had encountered all that, I thought that that guy may have been a zombie because we were there for you know people get this false idea understandably get a false idea of the chronology of events when they're looking at a video. They think that everything's happening quickly, but the truth was that we were at that guy's house for days and uh, and talking with him, negotiating with him, arguing money with him, having just really mundane arguments about money to the point that it was just we were all tired, we were all thought he was fucking with us, we had no desire to be there anymore. And then out of nowhere, after having been there for I don't know, 10 hours, he just leads us to a shack and opens it up and there's a guy in there. Um, <laughs> okay, and, okay, uh, there's a guy in the shack. Yeah. <laughs> and when the, the shack is like locked with a chain from the outside? Yeah, there's a lock on the door and he has a, a key jingling ritual and he unlocks the door and he has a bag of rock salt in his hand and he opens the door and he, he's telling me that the, you know, the idea at least when you look at the way Davis literature and, and related literature, the idea is that zombies are not to be feared, that any more than you would fear a retarded person or you would fear, you know, someone who's mentally disabled in some way. There's someone to be pitied, someone to help, not someone... It's like, they're, like, they're, like a, they're like a slave. I mean, they're like enslaved, like yeah. a servant. Or a, yeah, right. Right. It's not someone you're not afraid they're going to bite your neck or something like that. You're just, you you know, want to bring them a sandwich because you felt bad for them. Um so, so, but, but then in contrast to everything that I'd read, when we get to the shack, the guy's like, stand back, the zombie's gonna, he's gonna attack you if you get too close. So that was already, <laughs> oh boy, that was already scary and surprising that he was suggesting that the zombie was dangerous. And, uh, and, you know, we were sitting in front of this door all day. It wasn't, the whole, you know, it, the whole thing was, was executed, at least at the time, I felt very convincingly. And, he opens the door, he has a bag of rock salt, there's a guy beneath a sheet, and he's moaning and making all these strange sounds, speaking in tongues, and every time that the Bokor throws rock salt on him, he starts writhing and moaning in agony, and it was all very strange. It was a very strange performance, and I was somewhat convinced by it at that time. But in retrospect, you think it could be there's some camp value there, or or you well, got some because distance? because everything was on camera. I had the ability, and this is you know a luxury that a lot of people that Wade Davis didn't have, that a lot of people didn't have, uh, the ability to take a frame out of a video and then compare it to Croissant's uncle who's sitting in a lawn chair the previous day, which is really what it was. It was it was I believe it was just a friend of the Bocors. Um, because I, I did take frames. The zombie only reveals his face for a few moments, but then comparing it to the man that was the friend of the Bokor, they looked very similar. It was difficult to completely match the faces because the zombie was contorting his face in all these ways, and the man had a ring on his finger, and on that same finger, the zombie had a fabric tied around where the ring was. So there were some kind of odd some odd things that didn't quite add up in 
it, so I would. But you were, I, you were skeptical enough to to do the analysis and say, "Hey, is this just his buddy, and they're playing a prank on me?" Yes, absolutely, because I because it, it is an amazing idea. If it truly exists, that is amazing that you could do this to someone. That you could make another human being your slave just purely through the power of, of these drugs and through the power of their religious beliefs. That is something that I, I, uh, I'm very interested in the pot. It's certainly within the realm of possibility. Some people will suggest that, that Wade Davis's hypothesis is just impossible. It's certainly not impossible. It is within the realm of possibility, uh, but it's unlikely. Oh, oh, second. And one of the things, one of the things I want to tell the listeners is that, uh, you essentially demanded that the Bokor dose you with zombie powder. Isn't that correct? Yes. You you basically that just demanded. Correct. You said, "I want you to give it to me. Give me the zombie powder." And how did he? What did he do? I'm impressed. So, yeah, that's, so that's that was the... no, 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 no. I am. I mean, Jesus. Uh, <laughs> like, I mean, I, I, I wouldn't go anywhere near that stuff. I got to tell you, I, you know, that's you, you have balls, sir. You, well, then, yeah. So there, there certainly is a scary element to it. There's no antidote for TTX poisoning. We're deep in the country of. Go naive, uh, you know, an, an hour away from whatever hospital, assuming they would have even been able to treat me anyway. So there was certainly a scary component to to it. But uh, but on the other side of it, I had just become so <coughs> tired by everyone saying, you know, saying like, "Oh, give me a bottle. I'm going to break the. This, I'm going to eat this bottle and chew up the glass and swallow it. I'm going to." you know, fly over the car and do like all this stuff. And they always find a way to just make you not want to do it somehow. That was like the, the main thing is they, they would like introduce the possibility of something supernatural and then would somehow convince you not to make them do it because they would say it was dangerous. They'd say like, well, you realize that if I fly over this car, you're going to die tonight. Do you still want me to fly over the car? Things like that. <laughs> so, um, so, so, so he's saying, Yes, I have the powder, but I won't give it to you unless you take it. Then it turns into one of these things. Well, well, why would I want to take it if it's a poison? I don't want to be poisoned. Well, if you in the, in the you get into these cyclical arguments. Well, I won't give it to you unless you take it. I don't want to be poisoned. On and on and on and on and on. And uh, and then eventually I was like, okay, I will take it. Just give it to me. I will take this powder and be poisoned on camera because it became exhausting to deal with. Now he, and, he was expecting that. Was he was expecting you to say, all right, I'll take it, and I will agree to poison myself on camera. He was, I think that kind of, that was not what he was expecting would happen. He was expecting no, he was you would not expecting that. It. Yeah, he was not expecting that, because yeah, the, their whole shtick is based on scaring people. And uh, You and weren't scared. So, <laughs> and, so, and, and then, I guess it really also ultimately came down to just the fact that I didn't think that he was going to kill me on camera in front of an audience when we were going to pay him money. Like, uh, he wouldn't get his money if he killed me. If, if for no other reason than that, it seemed unlikely that he was going to just cold-bloodedly kill me in the middle of the day on camera. Um, Knowingly so that it would I go did... out to an audience of thousands of people. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, so, and so I did take the poison transdermally, you know, he had to. He had to put it my, on your skin, right? On my yeah, my skin, and uh, and nothing happened. And he was, you know, trying to, you know, saying stuff like, "Oh, you're getting real itchy now. You're getting really itchy. It's starting to itch you badly now." 
that sort of thing. And then, you know, it makes you a little, a little bit itchy, but, uh, but not itchy enough to zombify me. And, and then he, you know, magically removed the, the potion with a lime. And then he had a second, and that, but what I became fascinated by was because he had a second potion. And that was the one that I was like, okay, this is just a show potion, but under, in the coffin of a child, beneath a silk shroud in his temple, he had what I thought at the time was the real potion, because it was the one that he wouldn't let anyone touch. And uh, so then I was like, okay, whatever it takes, I've got to get, and this is not on camera, I was like, I've got to get a little bit of this potion to bring back for chemical analysis. And, uh, and so we bought the potion, the one that he gave me, the non-poisonous poison for some exorbitant price. I can't even, it may have actually been as much as $2,000. Wow. Ridiculously expensive. It was very, very expensive. Um, and this was, of course, the result of days of haggling. Um, but I also stole a small quantity of the secret poison that was beneath. Now, now when you say stole... When you say stole, that was actually a James Bond style infiltration. <laughs> was it? Did you? It was, it, w- it was a little bit. There was an origami cup that <laughs> involved, and and I did. So I did take a, a, a secretly take a sample of this stuff. And you know, people would say uh, there are also other reasons I didn't emphasize the fact that I did that because it's the sort of thing that makes people angry. The sort of thing where people say, "Oh, you're so entitled. You think you can just go to a traditional society and steal from them because they don't." immediately submit to your white demands. Like it's the sort of thing, and which is, you know, a valid objection, I'm sure. So I didn't want to emphasize the fact that I'd done that. And in the written article, I think I maybe mentioned it in passing, but, um, but, uh, but, but they had charged then, you, they had charged you $2,000 for some psychoactive poison that you thought probably was not psychoactive poison. And you wanted the real stuff. I wanted the real stuff. And, uh, and you know, what they gave me was, you know, sand and goat hair. And, uh, <laughs> and, and so, but what's interesting is the sample that was hidden under the, and this is like my spooky Wade Davis ending to the story, but, uh, the sample that I did steal mysteriously disappeared from my hotel room, which was odd. It was just gone? It was gone. I don't know if a cleaning lady took it. I had, there's video footage of me labeling it with the skull and crossbones and writing like, do not touch this poison uh, and uh, and then it was just it disappeared that is crazy yeah so that was but and then the end of the episode is he says he refuses to zombify a human on camera we debate endlessly about the well would you zombify a cow no you won't zombify a cow because whatever will you zombify chicken chickens don't have a strong enough spirit will you zombify this will you zombify that and uh, and eventually we settle upon zombifying a goat, and and you know this is again days of debate before we get to this idea of zombifying a goat. So he takes a goat, and we go out into this banana plant grove, and he ties up the goat and brings out a jar of poison, and uh, and it seems as if they they maybe already poisoned the goat or that they've done some strange thing to the goat before it's even begun because the goat already looks unwell. And, uh, and then they, they sprinkle this material on the goat's fur and then the goat does start dying. 
it, uh, and there's video footage of that as well. So they did have a poison of some kind. What that poison was, I have no idea. It could have been gasoline, for all I know. They could have, you know, poured gasoline in the goat's nose. It, it didn't necessarily need to be something as sophisticated as TTX. It could have been anything. But, um, but they did have access to something capable of killing a goat. Now, the goat wasn't zombified. They, they killed the goat, or they just made it near dead? They... I mean, every aspect of it was disappointing in its own way. So the idea, and I think they even do this in the Serpent in the Rainbow movie, the idea is that they give the the poison to an animal and that then the animal will be resurrected the next day. And but the problem was the poison didn't even really fully kill the goat. It was definitely, the goat was definitely poisoned. It was shaking, having kind of mild seizure type effects. It was frothing at the mouth, drooling, it was in pain without question, but it wasn't dead. And we were there for hours watching this goat die, watching the sunset as the goat slowly died in pain. And it was just an unpleasant, depressing thing. Like how long is it going to take for this goat to die from whatever has been done to it? And, uh, and so we just, by, by the end of the day, of the goat not quite dying, we were just tired of it. We didn't even want to, like, it was just, it was just depressing. We didn't want to have anything. I feel sorry for the goat. By that, yeah. What was that? You resurrect the goat the next day? I mean, I feel sorry for the goat. Yeah, I felt sorry for the goat. I think everyone felt sorry for the goat. I mean, and, poor uh, thing. Yeah, it's not the, the best place on earth to be a goat, although it's probably... <laughs> Better places to be a goat as well. So, so yeah, they uh, have access to poison, but you never got your hands on what it was, and you have no idea what what was going on. And the whole time well, down we there, did, you were just confused. It was all confusing. We did bring back two samples, not the one that I was in the child's coffin under the silk shroud, but the two samples that they sold to us. And we did subject them to. I extracted them with a, a friend of mine, and we did GCMS analysis on the material. And there was no TTX in it or scopolamine. Um, there may have been, you know, residues of some common cosmetic excipients like uh, methylparaben, but there was nothing psychoactive that we were able to detect. Crazy. So, yeah. actually, uh, before we. Uh move anywhere else. I just want to let our viewers know, if you want to ask a question, if you have a question for us, you can send us one at, uh, que- uh, is it question or questions at DoseNation.com? Questions. Questions at DoseNation.com. I apologize. So if you have a question for Hamilton or any of us here, you can uh, go ahead and send us an email at questions at DoseNation.com and both of us will get it. Me and James will both get that email. So um, I have, a, I have a, a question that I wanted to ask Hamilton or something that I wanted him to talk a little bit about. Uh, can you tell me how one man's search to cure his phantom limb pain led to the internet phenomenon <laughs> known as Rafflecopter, the, the, the drug that makes you shit your pants? Oh, God. How, 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 are, how are those two things connected? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a classic research chemical story. That is, you know, there's, there's a, a very, I won't say his name or even his pseudonym, but there's a, a well-known in the psychedelic community pharmacologist who lost his hand in an IRA bombing when he was a child and has been crippled by phantom limb pain ever since. And he's really brilliant, uh, but because of his chronic pain, 
you've always struggled with different different drug dependencies and uh and so he he's always looked for something that could cure his pain and, and that's that that's what thing. led him to chemistry right that's what led him to study chemistry to begin with i think that was one of the the factors that led him to become interested in chemistry and uh although his initial research was not on dissociatives or cannabinoids but on anorectic thymetrazine derivatives um but uh but so he found that the ketamine had this effect it was a, a corrective effect which allowed him to to correct the distorted body image that he had in such a way that the phantom limb disappeared and he no longer felt pain in, in his missing hand um and ketamine exerts a similar effect you know there's all sorts of interesting reports that there's something actually published on vice recently written by this uh transsexual who's saying like trannies should never ever do ketamine because uh because when you look at yourself in the mirror you see your biological gender or the gender that you were born with um and it's like horrifying so in that and that's kind of a, a reverse instant for someone who has you know what is arguably a distortion of their body image, although it doesn't necessarily have a negative impact on their functioning, and, and that's part of their identity, and that's fine. But uh, but they have a, a distortion in their biological image of their body, and uh, but they're happy with it. And then the ketamine makes them unhappy because it actually gives them an image of what they are truly like. Um, so right, so it corrects whatever dysmorphia they may be living with. Right, but yeah, but some people right. are supposed. If you want to call it dysmorphia, some people are happy with it. Some people are not. In the case of this chemist, he was well, not sure, happy. Well, sure, but I mean, it, 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 yeah. So he, so but he, he, uh, ketamine had some downsides. So what, what did he do? He came up with a new chemical, chemical right? So ketamine, derivative. Yeah, ketamine. Yeah, ketamine is the problem with this interstitial cystitis or what is this? You know, bladder. Um, Toxicity that, that people deal with, and uh, and his and because this is such a, a poorly understood phenomenon, he thought the very least you could do to try and attenuate that damage would be to at least make a, a chemical that was more potent. So if this is just like an intrinsic effect of these aryl cyclohexylamine compounds, then maybe if they were just a little bit stronger, you'd be ingesting less of them, and so the bladder toxicity would never manifest. That was his theory, and uh, which is uh, you know a, a good starting point. So he wanted to increase the potency. He also thought that that the addition of this methoxy group in the three position would infer some mu opioid effect on the molecule, which apparently it, it did not. But uh, certainly many you know they've now done some some basic pharmacology work on methoxetamine, and, and it is not an opioid, um, although maybe some of its metabolites are, perhaps the uh, the 3-hydroxy compound is an opioid, but, um, so, but in any so, case... In a, so this was a purely a one individual, this isn't an R&D lab, this is a single individual who takes a ketamine molecule and modifies it by putting a methoxy group at the third position to make it more potent to solve his own yeah. problem. And it's it's called MXE or methoxetamine called, or mketamine you know, it, or you, know, you could call it two oxo three methoxy PCE. You could call it methoxetamine. You know, all of these names are arbitrary. The only real chemical name is the long IUPAC name. But right. uh, 
But it's but, known uh, as it's known under a variety of names. It's known under a variety of names. And the nice thing about names like methoxetamine is although they don't necessarily exactly represent the structure of the compound, at least they have a semi scientific sound to them. They're right. respectable enough names. But then when you and Shulgin made the same observation that you should always try and come as close as you possibly can to the chemical name of the compound and not indulge in, in various slang names because it only increases the accessibility of the compound to people who wouldn't be interested in something with a scientific name, which is not good. You want so, these things to... Yeah, so I'm going to say a little bit. You, you became aware of this compound and you decided that instead of letting the media get a hold of it and figure out how to manipulate it, I'm going to get out in front of this story and present it to the world with a with a positive face as opposed to something that's in the underground. So you did this interview where you wanted to kind hope. Of, you wanted to break the methoxetamine story in a way that wouldn't get picked up by the underground media and turned into some craze. Right. And that's the that's always the debate with these compounds is of course I'm aware of these these things long before they hit the media, and a lot of them interest me. Like the, you know, these NDOME and benzylphenethylamine compounds are, are totally fascinating to me, and I've known about them for years. And but the debate has always been, is it a good idea to write about them? Because on one hand, when you write about a new compound, you have the chance to sculpt to the public's perception of, of what it is going to be. Um, so you can say, hey, this isn't you know something to play around with. It's it's strong and has the potential to be dangerous. It should be treated respectfully. Whatever. Um, you have that ability, which is great, but the downside is that you are then you're still introducing the compound into the public, which is going to accelerate its distribution, its potential ban, the, you know, the deaths that are very likely to result after any drug reaches a certain number of people. Um, so it's a, it's a double-edged sword, and and that is one reason I've always been uncertain of how to deal with these things when they're starting to emerge. But with methoxetamine, I knew immediately that it was going to become very popular and thought that this was a prime, a prime opportunity to, to be the first person to talk about the substance before it hit the tabloids and to try and give people the real story of its development. So they didn't think it was just some thing produced by a, a maniacal, evil chemist in China who's doing it to make people as addicted as they possibly could be or whatever. People think drugs are, however people so, think drugs are made. How long was it before, after you wrote the interview that um, it got picked up by Mixmag and, and named or dubbed Rafflecopter? It was almost exactly, yeah. It was almost exactly one year. Um, and so and that was, I thought, a, an indication that that strategy was effective, that, it, you know, people read the article, it was very popular, but at the same time, it didn't result in any sort of tabloid coverage. It just stayed exactly where it should be, um, you know, on on the drug forums for the people who are in the know, who are able to exhibit some degree of responsibility when working with these new compounds, for the most part. And, uh, and it was one year, and I thought, wow, this is great. This is just exactly where it needs to be. Um, you know, people can read about it in this article, on Wikipedia, on Blue Light, on Drugs Forum, whatever, and that is enough. That's all people need. But then the Mixmag article came out, and that they decided to just arbitrarily rename methoxetamine Rafflecopter. Which stands uh, for rolling on the floor, laughing, laughing 
crapping oh. our pants totally <laughs> ruined. I thought Rafflecopter was that thing where um, they had some kind of uh, meme on the computer that went around Facebook and Twitter. It was, you know, it was it was of literally a helicopter. Did that have anything to do with the drug, or is that like something totally different? There was a helicopter yeah, yeah. On, on the page where you could order. Then Rafflecopter became available on the internet shortly after that. Yes. And, and the whole thing, you know, this spawned a lot of conspiracy theories that are not so far-fetched to me that this was all some sort of carefully constructed marketing strategy. Um, because, first of all, it's odd, you know, when people say Rafflecopter out loud, you would assume it's spelled R-O-F-L-C-O-P-T-E-R. So this journalist instead chooses a non-standard spelling, C-O-P-T-R, like the Tumblr spelling where the E is neglected. Right. And, uh, and, and then at that exact time, a vendor appears selling exclusively Rafflecopter with the same non-standard spelling. And, uh, and that vendor goes crazy with their media. You know, they immediately started Twitter. I emailed the vendor to ask them, where did this name come from? Because I was, it just came out of nowhere. Certainly no one actually called methoxetamine rafflecopter. It's just ridiculous. <laughs> uh, so, so I was trying to figure out where, where did this name come from? And when I emailed the rafflecopter vendor, I get a response immediately. And they say, oh, you know, the, the, the pilot of rafflecopter is not available right now. But I'm also a journalist. <laughs> And as a journalist, I'd like to write a story for Vice Magazine, and I'd like to sell it to you for $500 or whatever about Rafflecopter. And I was like, well, this is just nuts. They're so media savvy that he has a journalist trying to sell me an article before I can write one myself. Like, it's just like a very bizarre thing. And, and it did take off. It was all over, you know, then Vice. How did it get the, the, the how, how did people associate it with, with uh, bowel incontinence? Where did that come from? It came from the Nixnag article. They're saying, oh, you know, this is a, a common symptom is people, the fecal incontinence is just, you know, part of the methoxetamine experience. Just Everyone, shitting your pants is part of the high. <laughs> <You just laughs> <Yeah. laughs> and, people, and people understandably pick up on that sort of thing. You know, it's like the methadrone pulling off your scrotum deal it's sensational <laughs> and uh and and so it makes complete sense that, that someone would want to so then every single media source that follows the nickmag article that's the the defining characteristic of the substance it is the drug that makes you shit your pants that is what it does so uh so they're saying you know it's a dangerous new drug it causes fecal incontinence please be careful with it uh, so the, the whole thing was really bizarre, and then it turns out that the proprietor of the Rafflecopter website was a journalist himself, in addition to this journalist that contacted me. And uh, and when I contacted the journalist that wrote the Mixnag article, he was like, oh, yeah, you know, people did call it Rafflecopter. But I do wonder, and, and now I sound like, you know, this is kind of like a nutty thing to suggest, but I do legitimately wonder whether or not the Mixnag journalist had something to do with the Rafflecopter distribution company because that would have been a great way to make you know twenty thousand bucks in a week just off of them just off of this one new compound and now is yeah. methoxetamine scheduled now or is it uh is it still gray it is scheduled it is scheduled yeah. doubtlessly as a result of this surge in media attention and uh and fear that it was some kind of demonic fecal incontinence inducing danger drug and it's not. You've tried it. It's uh I mean, I'm guessing you've tried it. 
it's uh, you know it's it's uh it's certainly not an entirely benign substance but i would say that it's very unlikely to produce any sort of serious adverse effects in people that use it responsibly on a few occasions you know maybe i wouldn't want to be injecting it daily for months at a time what happens <laughs> no. to my bladder afterwards oh, but boy. uh but you know I, I there's very few drugs that i think are legitimately scheduled and that would be an example of one that was not legitimately scheduled right right so um, um what kind of what stories are you chasing for 2013 what are you working on now um now, I mean, I'm working on all sorts of, uh, I'm trying to finish up this mushroom story that has been an obsession since 2008. And, uh, and it was supposed to be a cover article in Harper's and I couldn't even hand it in because I became so deeply obsessed with trying to solve this murder that I just couldn't let go of it. And it's become this now, like, okay, really... Now, you just, you just said murder. We don't know what you're talking about. Okay, okay, okay. It's, uh, it's a... There was a mycologist in San Antonio, Texas in the 70s and 80s named Stephen Pollock. He was a, a general practitioner and a mycologist. And he did a lot of seminal research on the cultivation of psilocybin-containing mushrooms, specifically on these uh, sclerotia or sclerotium-producing varieties, and uh, which is like a, for those that are not aware, that that is a hardened nugget of mycelium that certain species produce that generally contains a very high concentration of psilocybin, which is a psychedelic chemical. In, right. In, okay. Uh, okay. So, so he was doing all this research, but then at the same time, because he was a physician, he was selling prescriptions to his patients and had become notorious around Texas as the number one doctor feel good. He would prescribe quaaludes, Demerol, Desoxin, whatever people wanted. Uh, and all of the money from selling prescriptions went towards funding this massive underground mushroom research facility that he was trying to build. So I, I thought he was a very interesting character, but then he was just mysteriously murdered in 1981. Um, actually, it was around, around this very time in 1981. And, uh, and, his murder was never solved, and there's a huge number of theories about who is responsible, uh, conspiracy theories about who is responsible, you know, some very sober theories based on the actual crime scene analysis. And, uh, and I started to feel as if I could actually solve this murder based on new evidence that I discovered, and it just spiraled out of control. So I'm trying to finish that project. You're trying to wrap that up somehow? I'm trying to see, yeah, it's just, I totally understand the how people go nuts with like trying to solve these sorts of mysterious murders because it really you spiral out of control trying to understand some of these things and uh, and yeah, so I don't know what I'm I'm gonna you know finish off a few last interviews with various mushroom luminaries from the seventies and. Uh, and then try and get this thing published for mushroom season in the spring. And uh, when is your book coming out? I don't know. I'm I'm still still in the process of you know getting the proposal out to publishers to see if I can get in advance to actually make it materialize. But uh, yeah, it sounds like you're. It sounds like 
you're going to have a hell of a memoir uh, when you're when you're done with all of this. Absolutely. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> so. I want to, um, we actually do have a couple of viewer questions, uh, if you're uh, interested in taking them. Sure, yeah. So the uh, first one here, uh, I don't know if I should say their names, but, uh, it's, uh, the, this, this gentleman wants to know, are there any particular psychoactive substances that you think, uh, would benefit from further and better funded scientific research and why? I think all of them would. I can't I can not think of any that wouldn't, but, uh, but, you know, I think that there are certain there's certain compounds that I'm personally investigating that, that I think are warrant more research that uh, I hope to publish some stuff on in the future. But you know, I think I, I'm very interested in the nootropics and these racetam compounds. Um, I think there's a lot of potential in cognitive enhancers and memory enhancers and things like that. And that's uh, an area that's especially for, not only for treatment of Alzheimer's disease and senile dementia and things like that, but also for cognitive enhancement in people who are completely healthy just for the purposes of betterment, for the betterment of well people. Um, so that is an area I find fascinating, and I hope that more scientific attention will be paid to those sorts of compounds in the future. Uh, the second question uh, from from one of our viewers is what you, uh, what is your uh, nootropic stack? Yeah, people, and that's the thing is people are so interested in nootropics more than anything. I get questions about nootropics; it's become extremely obnoxious. I get questions uh, almost every day about what nootropics I take because it, I think this just represents a very common human desire to have a better memory, to be more intelligent, to have a longer periods of concentration and, uh, and everyone wants that. So they're like, everyone's trying to find the answer. And my nootropic stack at the moment is a, a new-ish chemical called Nupept that I take at about 20 milligrams a day accompanied by Pramiracetam at 300 milligrams a day. And I beg anyone listening to this not to email me and ask for vendors, but uh, you can find all these things very easily with a Google search. Uh, but uh, but you know, Pramiracetam and Nupept, I think, represent the two best widely available compounds at the moment. There's another one called Centrophenoxine slash Meclofexinate that I think is uh, that's used in Japan to treat acute alcohol overdoses that I think has a very stimulating uh, sobering effect that I enjoy. There's also phenylparacetam, which I think is a, a really promising, mild stimulant pyracetam derivative. Um, so there's, there's a lot of promising ones. But the, the thing is that these things are so complicated, it's truly really an individual pursuit because everyone is dealing with different problems with their ability to think, You know, whether it's their ability to articulate their thoughts or to write more coherently or to have a better memory to be mm-hmm. able to solve mathematical problems with more is there whatever. anybody is there anybody who is like the leading expert on nootropics i mean who who's out there really trying to cover this scene and figure out which profiles fit with the right drug for like if you have concentration problems or if you have memory problems or if you have recall problems is there anybody there's, there's out there no trying one. to fit this together there is no one i there is no one because this is not really a recognized this is not an area recognized, especially for healthy people. That's the first thing is that, you know, we're in a, in the United States and the medical paradigm is such that there is no market for the betterment of well people. So there's no one who's going to, you know, no doctor who's going to publicly say like, hey, college students, 
you know, I think that you'll really do better studying molecular orbital theory if you start, you know, taking 300 milligrams of premaracetam before every exam or whatever. But, uh, but, but so it needs to be it needs to be an amateur is what you're saying. It needs to be somebody it, who's not in the in the business. It needs to be an amateur who's actually going out and putting all this together. It, I don't know if it need. I don't know what even. You know, there was a, a man. I always have difficulty pronouncing his name, and I never heard anyone say it out loud. But I believe it's pronounced Cornelius Giorgia. Uh, I made a small tribute to him in the Weird Science issue of Vice. But he's the the chemist who discovered him, And he wrote, most of his writing is not in English, but he wrote one English book called Fundamentals to a Pharmacology of the Mind. And he outlines his entire theory of nootropics. And, and I think that he was you know, really a visionary and, uh, and understood the potential in these substances. And the problem is that they've had a lot of difficulty proving their effectiveness. Like if you look at contemporary uh, molecular neuropharmacology textbooks or whatever, you'll see that they generally just at most devote one dismissive sentence to these compounds and not even faulting them for that because the truth is that they are inconclusive for the most part. It's very difficult to, to quantify what they do to thinking. They do something. I, I think most people would readily admit that they do something, but it's hard to say exactly what it is and whether or not it's beneficial. Yeah, you can't tell. It's hard to measure improvement in someone who's already doing well on their cognitive tests. I mean, it's it becomes a very gray area. How does it manifest? Like, I take them, I feel, you know, there are these differences in recall of episodic memory, um, but I also have not been, you know, objectively measuring my ability to memorize random strings of numbers, things like that that I should be doing, and I haven't been just because I haven't, you know, found a program that I think is, particularly good for that purpose. Um, but then there's also just in the ways we use our minds, you know, there's that, that bestseller book, Moonwalking with Einstein, that just shows that people using their ability, their spatial memory can map information in a totally different way and take advantage of their brain's ability to memorize information. And it's just because people are thinking wrong, essentially. They are, they don't know that the brain can do this. And so it's like, how do you, how do you use your brain? Maybe some of these things can be achieved without drugs. How do you, and what sorts of things are you using your brain for? Are you looking for increased creativity? Then maybe nootropics will actually be worse. And then the, the one possibility that really interests me is like, I don't know if you're familiar with the Dunning-Kruger effect, but that's like this idea that the less competent someone is, the more competent they think they are. Essentially, the stupider you are, the smarter you think you are. So um, if, if you're thinking about, about it, in that way, then it's possible that a true nootropic would make you feel abysmally stupid, that you'd feel depressed and incapable, and, uh, and that it would be a miserable experience, anything that truly enhanced intelligence. And that's something you, all, you find in science fiction all the time. Kind of that's true. It seems, it seems like the smarter we become, the more uh, aware of our existential fate we become, and that leads to depression and the questioning of why and what does it all mean. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, a little bit of ignorance is bliss goes a long way, I think. (laughs) Yes. All right, Jake. Well, I think that's, I think that's going to cover it for me. Do you have any further questions that you want to go for? Uh, was there anything else on the list? I don't think so. Well, um, the one thing that I, I don't think I've talked to you about is you were one of the only people to visit the nuclear silo site where Kristen Cole and Gordon Skinner hold up. 
How did I you? I got an uh, email from William Leonard Picard a couple of days ago, actually. Oh, Happy really? New Year email. <laughs> is uh, where where is Leonard? He's serving a life sentence in prison. That's in that's Boston, what I, I that's what I thought. Oh. Yeah, and uh, I think we're gonna have Crystal on as a guest in a couple weeks. Yeah, I believe uh, on the nineteenth. Cool. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that. But uh, uh, are you the only journalist who have visited the silo? I think that right when the story was breaking in in 2000, um, that some you know there's some video archival footage that I use in that uh, Getting High with Crystal video, which is available on YouTube. So some people came in with a camera, and I think that there was an unsuccessful attempt to make a independent film out of it that also entailed a trip to the silo, but. Yeah, our our visit was definitely the most thorough coverage of the interior that has been published thus far. And how did you get access to the silo? Is it still who who owns it? I mean, who owns the silo, and how do you get into it? It's owned by this uh, World War II tank enthusiast who <laughs> collects cars and uh, and is really kind of. I think they dismantled, according to Crystal, they dismantled a huge part of the silo after the bus. They took everything that was of value and sold it. So it, it already is a little bit wrecked, um, and, and certainly it was not in the, except for you know, maybe the bathroom and a few other places still had some remnants of their former glory. But, um, but yeah, it's owned by this military tank enthusiast who filled the whole thing with cars and, and uh, German tanks. And this, uh, and for it, people who don't know, it was uh, the site of a very famous LSD lab. It seems that the, that the lab was actually not located at that site. It's that not it, located there, but that's where they were holed but, up. But this, this was the underground pleasure dome where right. the where the psychedelic experiments took place, and uh, and and I mean that in the ingestion sense, not in the synthesis sense, and. Uh, and in order to gain access, you know, we just paid some guy some money and got him. The guy that owns it. So it was pretty straightforward. He was open to the idea. And he's very interested in the mythology of the and the history of the silo himself. It wasn't some kind of thing like, oh, no, you don't say that there was a, a LSD baron in the silo at one point. Like, he was fully aware of everything. Right. It's got to be local lore. Yes. It is, I think it's you know, one of the biggest things that's ever happened to that area. In fact, it, like that was when the episode came out, I was getting e- emails from all kinds of people who, um, you know, some guy that would bag Gordon Tutskinner's groceries at the local supermarket, you know, saying like, oh yeah, you'd tip me a hundred dollars every time I bagged a vegetable for him. And so Gordon Tutskinner, are... Gordon Tutskinner was the owner of the silo for yes. a period of time. So even before the bus, I think that people were acutely aware that there was something unusual about the people in the missile silo, which at that time people thought was a company manufacturing springs for NASA. <laughs> what? That was their cover. They really? Had a, they had a cover business. <laughs> wow. Because, and it wasn't even necessarily a cover because, weirdly, Gordon Todd Skinner actually was the heir to a spring manufacturing fortune. Amazing! Wow, that's 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 mind blowing. So, All right, Hamilton, I think I think that's enough for one day. Yeah, I think okay, it's time. Okay. Yeah, I haven't eaten all day, so I think I need to <laughs> go have some dinner. All right. Well, thanks for having me. Yeah, and uh, thanks for uh, thanks for joining us, Hamilton. It's been it was really interesting. 
So uh, remember, you can like us on Facebook at uh, facebook.com forward slash Dose Nation. And you can uh, check us out on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash Dose Nation. And of course, our website is uh, dosenation.com. Thank you to the Sepia Radio Network for syndicating us today. And uh, hopefully we'll see you all next Saturday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, thanks for joining us, and uh, we'll see you all then.